When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the end of an era edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in San Francisco this week, and on today's show, Apple CEO Tim Cook announced this week that he is proud to be gay. We'll talk about what his essay could mean for the future of the so-called glass closet. Is the U.S. now in a fight with Saudi Arabia for the title of the most powerful oil-producing country in the world? And what does that have to do with the falling price of oil? And the Fed has ended its historic effort to stimulate the American economy. We'll discuss whether quantitative easing made a difference. And our numbers round will include a fond farewell. But first, let me introduce my regular guests... Kathy O'Neill is a data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Felix. So we're going to begin with Tim Cook, who announced this week, he is, of course, the CEO of Apple, and wrote a piece in Business Week saying that he is proud to be gay. Now, many of us have known this and been writing about this for some years now, but officially he is now no longer merely the most powerful gay man in the world. He is now the most powerful openly gay man in the world. And this is a good thing, surely. Um, Kathy, what took him so long? You know, when when I heard this news, I 
you know, the, my first thought being a New Yorker is like, so what? And then I thought, well, you know, this is actually enormous news. It's economic news. Um, How is this economic news? It's economic news for two big reasons. Um, and we can debate this if you disagree. But in, in a, more than half the states, I believe, you can still get fired for being gay. So that's already an economic consequence of being openly gay. And the second thing is... But not California. I mean, this has no... Imp- and plus, there's not really any chance that Tim Cook is going to get fired. No, no, no. Not Tim Cook himself. Gay. But you mean the issue, of course. Okay, so you're not talking about Tim Cook anymore. Well, the second reason is very specific to Tim Cook, which is that okay. Apple has products and people who are homophobic might decide not to not to buy Apple products anymore. So that was a risk that he took on behalf of his company when he um, came out of the closet. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the chances of people not buying an iPhone because the CEO is gay are, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's probably one or two. It's not going to make any real difference to a- Apple's bottom line, there was a little bit of noise about, well, what about those Asian suppliers? Aren't some of them very homophobic and might have an issue with this? But frankly, Apple is so enormous that you'd have to be completely insane to refuse an Apple contract just because Tim Cook's uh, you know, revealed something which everybody already knew. Is that not the case, Jordan? Yeah, I think it, it was interesting. It took so long because... He is so powerful that, in a way, he had more leeway to do this than almost any other. I mean, can you think of another CEO who was in better position to come out of the closet? Okay, well, let's 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 stop you right there because I had a, a long conversation okay. with various people yesterday about about this term. Yeah, come out of the closet. The um, term probably. Which here. We yeah. we don't like this term. We don't like the term coming out, and we're not a big fan of the term the closet. Um, now, it is undoubtedly true that back when. Tim Cook was growing up in Alabama, there was this institution of the closet, and it was an incredibly harmful and economically harmful um, institution. The former CEO of BP, British Petroleum, John Brown, recently wrote a book called The Glass Closet, which explains just how harmful this institution is in the way that it forced people to live a double life and in, in very harmful and economically and um, emotionally damaging ways. Tim Cook was not in that kind of closet. Tim Cook was living a happily, o- not not open, not outly gay, but openly gay. You know, he never pretended to be straight. What interests me is that the rest of the world kind of sort of pretended that he was straight. That because of the way that the media works, um, if you don't say that someone is straight, that's if you don't say that someone is gay, that's tantamount to saying that they're straight. Well, I would say that the the media world didn't, you know, Out Magazine ranked him at the top of their power list in 2011, essentially when he was ascending to, to right. leadership and, at and, Apple. And I've been writing about Tim Cook being gay since about the same time. But the mainstream media has assiduously refused to say that he was gay. The New York Times never said that he was gay. And famously, there was a CNBC host who blurted this out on um, in front of Jim Stewart of the New York Times. And Jim just kind of didn't know how to respond because, of course, Jim Stewart, who himself is gay, um, knew that t- Tim Cook was gay but couldn't bring himself to actually say what everybody knew. There was this weird kind of self-censorship going on. And there was, this, there, there was a, a very, I think complicated debate in the press about that because on the one hand Tim Cook obviously did value his privacy for a long time and he made it was a conscious choice not to uh, make this public 
On the other hand, you have to wonder if by not reporting the fact that Tim Cook was gay, if in some way the media was complicit in pretending there was no such thing as a powerful gay CEO um, or not no such thing, but if, as if, you know, the, the, as if it was minimizing the achievements of gay Americans by not acknowledging reality. And I think um, in some and, way and what you definitely yeah. have is is this situation where the gay men who feel most comfortable coming out are generally pretty sort of squishy and effeminate or in the entertainment industry or, you know, uh, of a certain quasi-stereotypical mean. Um, And you have Tim Cook, who's a very, you know, straight-laced, highly powerful corporate executive. This is not in any way a stereotypical gay man, and he's an incredible role model. And as he said in his essay, you know, the fact that he has come out is going to give hope and pride to millions of young Americans. And it's worth impressing here, well, not just Americans, gay people around the world, that the institution of the closet, which probably doesn't really completely exist anymore in places like California or is much smaller than it used to be, really does exist in other states and in other countries. And so it's a beacon. Yeah. So I agree with everything you said. Um, and I think it is an incredibly cool role model. I think it's a really interesting question um, and point you made, Felix, that people will assume that you're straight if, you, if you're not open um, about being gay. It's a very different kind of discrimination than you see as a woman or, you know, as a minority because it's just, you can't pretend someone is not a woman. I mean, maybe, I mean, in some cases you, you might not know. The Certainly game. not you, Gaffney. Uh, <laughs> Um, I would argue that during Obama's pre- two presidential terms, like the changes that have happened for gay, you know, gay Americans have been absolutely monumental. I would even argue that um, there's been more progress made um, for for gay Americans than have been made for women or or black Americans. I mean, it's that's just- undoubtedly true. And it does mean in a weird way that Tim Cook is behind the curve here, that when Obama was elected, you could kind of understand why he didn't want to make a big song and dance about it. But at this point, it just became silly that you would have a gay man who wasn't okay talking about the fact that he was gay. And by the way, he did say that he mentions his privacy, and that's fair enough. But, you know, we have no idea whether he has any kind of a partner, and we don't know nothing about his sex life. This is not about his sex life, people. This is about his sexuality, which is an entirely different thing. It's not a private matter. It's just a question of who you are. It's a simple fact of who you are. And there's nothing shameful about it. And there's nothing particularly private about it. Amen on that. And I also think it's kind of interesting the way he actually discussed God in his statement, too. He So he said he's the, you know, proud that God made him gay. And I thought that was kind of an interesting mix of religion and, and um, progressive yeah. words. I, I just want to add one thing, mm-hmm. just to give a little extra context for all this. It's just why, it, I mean, obviously, Apple is it's America's biggest company. It, it's a huge deal that its CEO would, would acknowledge being gay. But beyond Tim Cook, there weren't that many super high profile, or there haven't been that many super high profile gay executives. Um, the financial time, Zero, I believe, yeah. is, is, is the <laughs> number of out Fortune 500 yeah. CEOs before this week. And, you know, Zero. Yeah, absolutely. And the Financial Times and a, a group called Outstanding in Business, it's an LGBT networking group, actually put together a list of, of the most uh, prof- high profile uh, gay executives in the in the world, I, I believe, was there and <laughs> where they were pulling from. And number one was head of banking for the UK and head of retail banking and wealth management for Europe at HSBC. Um, which is there, there, there's, mean, a, there's a couple of firms like Replacements Limited and American Eagle, which are run by 
out gay men, but not public companies. It's very rare. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is it's it's in the end, it's a victory saying you can almost you can talk if at least if you're in a tolerant industry like technology and not every industry is like that. Let, let's be very real. You can come out. You can talk openly in public about, about your sexuality and there will not be a limit on your career. That's what this is signaling. And I, I think it's it's a real victory. With that, we are going to move on to John Brown's former industry. Now, John Brown, the former head of BP, explains in his book that one of the reasons that he stayed in the closet for so long was because he was jetting around the world dealing with a lot of extraordinarily homophobic countries, including Russia, of course. Um, but that's a painful segue, Jordan, to something which has got nothing to do with sexuality, right? <laughs> no. Um, no, nothing to do with sexuality, but it is, it is interesting, I promise. So we know the United States has been the world's largest oil producer, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's been the most powerful oil producer. That is a role that has usually been assigned to Saudi Arabia or traditionally been assigned to Saudi Arabia because it is essentially the ability to increase or decrease its production at will to sort of push prices up push prices down, control them. That seems to maybe be changing. Uh, as you may have heard in the news, uh, global oil prices are down about 25% from their September highs. And there are a whole variety of reasons this has happened. But the big one, the tipping point, as some people are saying, was when Saudi Arabia on October 1st said it was going to, rather than cut its production in order to fight back against this flood coming from the United States in North Dakota and Texas, it was going to actually give its customers a price cut in order to fight for its market share. This took OPEC by surprise. It took much of the world's traders by surprise. It has helped push oil down into the 80s. And From where? How much was it before? Uh, depending on if it was American crude or uh, Brent crude, we're talking over $107 a barrel, over 115 in some cases. And this is showing up in gas prices in America, right? They're, I mean, this is the great thing about podcasts where, you know, a lot of you guys, we love you, are in your cars right now. And you know that it's cheaper to drive your car than it has been in months. Absolutely. It's showing up in gas prices. It's probably going to show up in the U.S. economy. And we can talk about the complicated ways it will surface in a bit. Now, the question is, why did Saudi Arabia decide to essentially cut its prices rather than drive prices up? Some people think it's just fighting for market share which is they want to essentially protect as many of their customers as they can. But there was an incredible quote from Goldman Sachs. And it's important that it's coming from Goldman Sachs because they are one of the kings of the commodity markets. They're not fools. The, these guys know what's going on. And they say, if Saudi Arabia were to cut production, it would accommodate the further expansion of U.S. shale, as well as reduce Saudi profits. And then they follow up. This is the important quote. OPEC will no longer act as the first swing producer. U.S. oil output will be called upon to fill this role. That is another way of saying the United States is now effectively the most powerful oil producer in the world. Let me let me throw in a, a totally different take on this, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, so as you as you mentioned, the United States has a bunch of oil producers that just pump oil, and yeah. they're not very coordinated. Yes. So they're just pumping a lot of oil. Whereas Saudi Arabia, those guys have an organized thing where they agree to stop to cut back and or not. Well, they have companies like Saudi Aramco, which con which control more or less the entire oil output of the entire country. So they can control these things in the way that the U.S. cannot. That's right. true. So, but I would argue that they're actually they're controlling it right now. They're just controlling it, and it, they're going up. And one of the reasons I believe this is um, that I've read that the the production cost for American producers is much higher than for the Saudi producers, which is to say that if they if they keep production up and the prices go down, 
the, the margins, the profit margins are slimmer for the United States than for the Saudis. So what, what that means is it's actually at some point there's going to be a, a moment when it's not profitable for the United States to produce oil. Well, that that's part of the dynamics that are going on here, certainly. And there seems to be a sense among the Saudi officials that, yes, that is what they're doing. Some have said outright that they do not think that U.S. oil will be profitable after a little bit more of a price drop. But in the U.S., analysts have basically said, no, there's actually a lot of leeway that U.S. oil can be profitable even around $60 a barrel in some cases. Okay, I need to ask you about this, Jordan. If I'm a U.S. oil producer, and I agree with Kathy much more than I agree with you, by the way. I think that Saudi Arabia is still by far the most powerful oil-producing country in the world, precisely because it can and does control, very simply with one knob, how much oil it produces. Whereas, as you say, there's a thousand different oil producers in the US. No one's in charge of them. And so there's no real seat of power there. And But one of the questions which I have for you is this question of profitability. If you can sell the oil for more money than it costs you to get it out of the ground, then you can say, well, you know, it's profitable for us to do this, so of course we're going to do it. But that's not the only calculation the oil company CEOs are making, right? They're also trying to ask themselves, well, what happens if we just leave the oil in the ground? It doesn't go anywhere. And if oil prices end up rising in a few years' time, we can make more money by selling that oil for more money than if we pump it now and sell it now. So even if it's profitable to pump oil now, if it would be more profitable in a few years' time, it still makes sense to kind of pull back, doesn't it? To some degree, it gets complicated. You know, there are some wells that where recovery rates are actually affected by whether or not you continuously pump them, and then there's issues with restarting. It's You can really get into the weeds on it. But I think the, the general attitude in the U.S. is you, you keep pumping when it's profitable, especially because a lot of the people driving the shale boom are not the major producers. It, it, it's not the Exxons of the world. It's small and mid-sized companies that don't necessarily have the luxury of leaving it there. Um, and, you know, if it's true that, as, as some people have said, or, you know, as uh, the chief economist of ConocoPhillips, for instance, has said that oil is basically profitable in the U.S. above $50 a barrel, I don't see production necessarily falling anytime soon uh, here. I don't I see it's sort of just keep moving forward. So so put a pin in this one. I just want to make this clear. Jordan Weissman is coming out on Slate Money and saying that low oil prices are here to stay. I don't know if they're, you know, for a while, possibly. Yeah, I, I, I can't let this segment end without saying the following thing about Goldman Sachs. It is absolutely true that they're very smart, but people often interpret that to mean that when they say things publicly, then we should listen. <laughs> That's not <laughs> That's, the same thing. Yeah. They usually keep the good stuff for themselves. I, I just also want to throw in... Yeah, the traders are smart. The analysts, who knows? Who cares? <laughs> well, like, exactly what are they doing by making public pronouncements? Um, Felix, so... We at an earlier week we had a segment about the concept that there is way more oil in the ground than we would technically be allowed to use if we don't want to have global warming. So I just want to throw that in there as something that might actually prevent people from from holding off on oil production because they might say, oh, like you know, who knows? The regulations might. They're, get they're worried about some future cap and trade regime, and they want to sell their oil before they need to pay massive carbon taxes on it. That's so I'm, I'm, I actually I'm kind of with Jordan on the fact that I don't think U.S. producers are organized enough or um, you know forward thinking enough um, to actually stop if if there's at least a slim margin to be made. The final topic today is Kathy. You're going to tell us about our favorite favorite subject: quantitative easing. <laughs> 
Kathy, what is quantitative easing and why is it in the news this week? Well, Felix, quantitative easing was the um, effort on behalf of the Fed to um, help the economy recover after the uh, credit crisis. And the reason we're talking about it today is because they, the Fed has just announced this week that they're going to officially end the third installment of quantitative easing um, next month. And so it's a big deal. So they have wound up spending trillions and trillions of dollars on mostly long-dated bonds, whether they're mortgage bonds or treasury bonds. They're basically bonds issued by the government in the form of the government or Fannie and Freddie. And what effect has this had on the U.S. economy, Jordan? Yeah, I think the the consensus... uh, It's hard to say what the consensus is, but I think that, yes, it has probably helped. The problem is... It's very, very, very difficult to disentangle the effects of this program, this massive amount of bond buying, from everything else that was going on in the economy. You know, one of the best arguments I've seen that this was probably useful um, was that we had a Congress that was slashing its budget. There was sequ- you know, sequestration, um, money was being pulled out of public programs, and at the same time, the economy didn't take a hit. Um, we managed growth didn't speed up, but it didn't slow down dramatically. And I think this is probably the best argument, I, I, or at least to me, seems like the best argument that QE had some of its intended effects. I, my, my personal sense is we would probably be worse out, off without it. Well, the one, the one thing which I think you have to, the, if you have to disentangle effects here, the one thing which happens is that if you pour trillions of dollars into the financial markets then that helps the financial markets. So the bond markets have been very strong, and that has spilled over into the stock markets, which have been very strong. We have this week got a pretty good GDP figure for the U.S. economy grew at a 3.5% rate in the third quarter. That's good. And I think that actually helps explain why the Fed is stopping its emergency measures. We have to emphasize here that quantitative easing is something which no central bank had ever done before the crisis. This is a very, very heterodox, crazy thing which you only do when interest rates are at zero and you want them to go even lower below zero. It's effectively a way of trying to have negative interest rates um, when you can't, when you have that thing called the zero lower bound. And they've said, well, look, you know, we have a relatively acceptable unemployment rate. We'd like it to go down a bit. We have relatively strong GDP growth. We don't need to do crazy stuff like QE anymore. Right. I agree. I mean, and I also agree with Jordan that it's hard, it's very difficult to compare, um, you know, the existence of QE versus the non-existence of QE. But I I think, Felix, you're absolutely right that the most clear thing that has happened because of all this bond buying is that that, um, that long-term, and they've been buying long-term debt, so that long-term um, borrowing costs have are low. Um, and in what the, the, there's lots of effects of that, but one of them is it's good for the bond market. Another one is that it's good, it's easy to borrow money and you can, you know, then invest in stocks. So it's not that surprising that we've seen good stock market growth. Um, the question of whether it's been good for the rest of the country that isn't involved in this in a day-to-day basis in the stock market is, is a little bit harder. Alan Greenspan has is, is is the world's biggest and most famous proponent of this idea that a healthy stock market will trickle down to the broader economy. That one of the best ways, weirdly, to boost 
general economic growth is to have high stock prices. Um, I'm not sure I completely agree with well, that. Well, so, so one of the things uh, going directly to that, the concept of whether the trickle-down effect has or has not worked, um, which I think it hasn't, um, one of the biggest complaints about QE for, from the people who didn't like the idea was that we'd have wild inflation because of all this you know, free and printed money. We haven't seen that. We, inflation hasn't gone um, hyper. Um, and in some sense, you could think of this, the way I think about this, maybe you guys would disagree, is it, there has been inflation, but only for stocks. Um, there hasn't been wider inflation. And one of the reasons is we, we haven't seen the median wage go up. And, and we also have like downward forces like Walmart and you know, Amazon, where, the, where prices of goods is actually kept low um, for the average consumer. But at the same time, we have the cheap borrowing costs for investors. So we're sort of seeing inflation for the 1% in a certain sense. But it's the good type of inflation. It's the inflation they like because, because <laughs> yeah. it means they're getting richer. Well, they like it, of course. The question, of course, now is what's going to happen once QE is gone? When quantitative easing is gone, are we going to see the stock market you know, become more realistic? And I, my answer to that, by the way, is no, we're not. Because actually now the real game uh, is about what, what's happening in the, this country versus what's happening in other countries. There's, there's one other point. I do wonder how much of QE3's effect, if there indeed was an effect, was just the sense of security it gave investors and bankers and businessmen, giving them the sense that there was an adult in the room. We've had a Congress that essentially abandoned policymaking for the last several years and engineered a bunch of crises on top of that just to make things seem more unstable. The Fed was the essentially the only game in town. And I do have to wonder if just the, the, the idea, the knowledge that there was somebody doing something to boost the economy had a positive effect just psychologically for the people who invest, for the people who are bar- making loans, et cetera. And I don't know if there's any way to tease that out, but I do think it's worth considering that maybe there was just an element of, of, uh, you know, of confidence that, that this engendered. I think that's probably true. So with that, we're going to move on to our bittersweet numbers round. Um, at the end of every Slate Money podcast, as I'm sure most of you know, we each choose a number which reveals something about the world of business and finance. And this week, we are joined by our producer, Tracy Samuelson, the great Tracy Samuelson, who's been with us from the beginning, but sadly is not going to be with us any longer since she has an amazing job working now full-time for the excellent radio show Marketplace. Tracy... Hello. What are you doing? What That's are you doing? That's my best Felix impersonation. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Yeah, I am. Um, I am going to be a reporter with Marketplace. So, um, stepping out of the control room from Slate Money and uh, being on the air reporting for Marketplace a few days uh, full time. You know, you'll hear me a couple days a week probably. Tracy, every time I hear you on Marketplace, I'm going to get sad that we don't work together anymore. <laughs> yeah, she's just queue up. I will remember you. Just but I will be putting to use all the things I've learned from you all over the last. 25 episodes that we've uh, we've done together since, 25 I guess. 25 episodes. Yeah, 25 of those. And I went back and counted, and a third of them had to have the explicit rating in iTunes, which just personally makes me so unbelievably happy. And I, I think we all <laughs> thank have to you, thank Kathy. Kathy You're welcome. That. You're welcome. <laughs> Can this become our plug, the most foul-mouthed finance show in podcasting? <laughs> this, this will be our new selling point. I think it should definitely be the tagline of some, put it on the logo, maybe. Awesome. <laughs> we'll put it on the logo. Tracy, you you have brought with you a number, have you not? I have. My number is 1.2 million. 
And that is the number of copies of Taylor Swift's new album, 1989, that forecasters are predicting that she will sell in its first week this week. So that's a pretty big number. Even the really big superstars have can have trouble these days selling over a million albums in a week. And she did 1.2, I think, for her last album, too. So she's she's pretty up there. I mean, she's just one of the most consistently bankable stars in pop music. I mean, she's just a force. And, you know, she's one of the ones who has the, the ability not to put it on streaming for a while. She doesn't have to release it on Spotify immediately. She has some luxuries that other musicians just don't have. But uh, 1.2 million, is, it's just huge by, yeah. today's sta- dimin- by today's diminished standards. That's big. And one of those is me. I bought it. Did you guys <laughs> you buy it? it? Anyone so, else listen yeah. to it? Where'd you get Tracy, it? Tracy, tell us. What? This is the pop album, right? This is this is Taylor Swift Goes Pop. This is Taylor Swift Goes Pop. Yeah, this is her, her crossover. Although she's pretty, I mean, she, she started in t- country. She kind of crosses back and forth between pop and country a lot. But this is supposed to be her, you know, her fully 100% pop album. What's the verdict? What's the Tracy Samuelson oh, what's verdict the, what's on my this verdict? album? Um, she, you know, I think it's pretty good. I, I like it. My favorite song, I think, is um, Out of the Woods. Oh, I loved that one. Yeah. Out of the Woods is great. It sounds a lot like high it, it sounds. It, it sounds like a Stephen Sondheim musical, but I'm Tracy, sure. <laughs> Tracy, is it as good as Weird Al Yankovic's latest album? Um, is that the last album you bought? Say no. Kathy? I did yes, not listen to that, so <laughs> that I, don't is know, crazy. I don't know quite how to answer that question. The grammar good, one is Good a answer. Song. Correct <laughs> answer, Tracy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, thanks, Tracy. Kathy, are you going to... I have a feeling your your number is going to be even bigger than 1.2 million, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my number, I've decided to have a happy number this week because like, my last few numbers were sad. This number is 10 million. It's the number of people that have health insurance because of Obamacare, because of the Affordable Health Act. And um, that it was a, something I stole from the New York Times. Um, they have this pretty amazing um, data journalism piece about Obamacare and how much it's changed insurance across the country especially in southern Texas. It's a really fascinating article and a very happy piece of news. So wait, how many, what was your number again? 10 million. 10 million people Ten now have insurance. 10 million. Yes. That's amazing. Amazing. Like that. Yeah, absolutely. My, my number is, is even bigger. My number is 600 million, but it's not quite as happy. So what happened this week is that Citigroup came out with its third quarter earnings, which were reasonably healthy. And then after it came out with its third quarter earnings, it restated its third quarter earnings a few days later, saying, oh, whoops, it's $600 million less than we said. In the third quarter, which is July, August, and September, we made $600 million less than we said that we did. Um, And the reason for this is because it looks like they're going to have to make another big FX settlement because they were doing bad things in the FX markets. And they realized this in October, but somehow they've managed to they've managed to decide that these negotiations, which are happening in October and probably won't happen for another couple months yet, when they actually need to write the check, are going to hit their third quarter earnings from somewhere in like July. I guess it makes no sense to me. Hmm. So, so we we we're really big numbers this week. Tracy was one point two million. And then Kathy was an order of magnitude greater at 10 million. And then I was an order of magnitude greater than that at 600 million, which means that, Jordan, your number must be in the billions, right? No, it's not. My number is a measly $90,766. In late May, Uber said, Uber, our our favorite taxi-ish company, said that was the median annual income of a driver in its UberX service in New York City. 
And so uh, Slate's own Allie Griswold decided to do a little experiment. She said, well, if that's the median number, it's median income, it's got to be pretty easy to find somebody who makes it. So she said, Uber, go find me one driver who actually makes this income. Uh, it's been a while. They still haven't been able to do it. Uh, her article came out. They complained that there were tons. She didn't find them. And they still yet have not been able to produce a single driver for us who actually makes what is supposedly the median annual income for one of their, I guess, contractors or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> so, so what you mean is like something nearby because no one necessarily makes exactly. No, they've not been able to produce one that makes that number or more but or even should, close. They yeah. should They should be able to find someone who makes quite a lot more given that half of their full-time drivers are meant to be making more than this. They, right. they should be able to if this is <laughs> if this number is in any way accurate. So. Interesting. I think the the lesson is whenever a a startup or a tech company talks about how transparent it is and shows you a bunch of data about its operations that aren't audited by anybody, it, it's worth taking a moment to question them. Well, like Tracy's tenure as our producer, all good things must come to an end. So we must end this week's podcast. Thanks for listening to Slate Money. And thank you, Tracy, for being here with us for so many episodes. No, thank you guys. This has been this has been really fun, and I've learned a lot from you. Thanks, Tracy. And yet, this the show will go on somehow. We will struggle on without her. And so, notwithstanding Tracy's departure, do please subscribe in the iTunes Store and help us spread the word about the show by leaving a review. Um, please keep writing to us with your comments and kudos and complaints and everything else. I need to have a little shout out here to Alexander Hoffman who sent us a long series of emails all of which were absolutely fantastic and none of which we had time to get to this week uh, we might yet come back to them um, the email address as ever is slatemoney at slate.com we really do love those letters and questions so the producer for Slate Money this week is Joel Meyer the executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.